He's risen. He's risen indeed. When I was looking at the calendar and saw that April 1st was Easter, I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit. April Fool's Day. It's been celebrated for centuries. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been celebrated for a couple thousand years. And I'll put my money... I shouldn't talk about betting as I'm preaching, should I? Sorry. I would passionately say this, that the resurrection is a far greater reality than any April Fool's joke. It is real. He did rise from the dead, and we are grateful for that. But I could not resist the opportunity to talk about a couple, a few April Fool's Day jokes that have happened over the years that didn't simply involve a couple people. They impacted hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of people. In 1980, the BBC claimed this, that the four clock faces of Big Ben will be changed to a digital display, and that the first four callers will receive the clock hands from Big Ben. Needless to say, the operators were overwhelmed with response. In 1938, perhaps the most infamous April Fool's Day joke happened when Orson Welles broadcast the War of the Worlds, claiming that the Earth was under attack from aliens, even though as you listen to the broadcast, you find out that he had told people, this is a joke, this isn't real, but millions of people were not happy with Orson Welles. They fled to their churches, they fled all over the place, seeking shelter and refuge from certain demise. And in 1996, Taco Bell claimed this, that they had purchased the naming rights to the Liberty Bell, and from here on out, it would be known as the Taco Bell Liberty Bell. The National Historical Park at Philadelphia, where the Liberty Bell is is uh, is located, was inundated with thousands of phone calls of angry people saying, how dare you let Taco Bell get that bell? And perhaps one that flew a little bit under the radar, but I got to hand it to him, incredibly creative. In 1998, Burger King introduced introduced the left-handed Whopper. They claimed it was specially designed for left-handed people. And the condiments were the same condiments, but they were rotated 180 degrees. I applaud Burger King. They had plenty of left-handed Whoppers served that day. But when I saw that Resurrection Day and April Fool's Day connected, that they were on that same day, this thought went through my head. I find it rather humorous that one event urges people to make up a fake story and present it as true while the other event looks so unbelievable that it can't be true, yet it is just as true as the sky is blue, that the ocean is wet, and that Davis Road between on Monday through Fridays in the morning and in the afternoon becomes a parking lot. The resurrection is just as true as those three things. 
We have a God who came and lived on this earth. We have a God who came and lived on this earth for 33 days, was crucified, buried in a tomb for three days, and on the third day he rose from the dead. It is a verifiable fact. It has been researched perhaps more than any other event in all of history, and every single person who's researched it reached this conclusion that there is no fooling. He did rise. And we celebrate that this morning. I invite you in your Bibles to turn to John chapter 20 or on your smartphone, go to your Bible app and, and, uh, and scroll to John chapter 20. And we pick up the reading there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of lying, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that he was there. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, and she told him that he had said these things to her. Father, we pray now as we come into this time of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, open our minds that we may understand this remarkable miracle, and open our hearts that we would have lives that are transformed in such a way that people can't help but see the hope, the power, and the strength of the resurrection flowing in our lives and through our lives and to impact this world for you. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that no one would hear anything that I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear. And in all of this, may Jesus Christ be glorified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Early in the first day, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The last time we see Mary, the last time that we saw Mary Magdalene was, was when she was sitting outside the tomb of where Jesus Christ was, was, was buried. She saw where they put Jesus in the tomb. She heard the stone roll in front of the entrance. And not only did darkness descend on the world that day, it descended immensely on her. There are a variety of words that we can use to describe what perhaps Mary's possible state of mind was at this time, but one of those words has to be distraught. Distraught. Distraught because it wasn't another person that was put into the, into the tomb. It was this one person that, that believed in Mary Magdalene, that saw and understood who she was. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning saying, well, wait a second, if she saw where, where, she, where he was put into the grave, why show up? Why show up when, when you know he's still going to be dead? Well, on the third day, and that's what we find out, it's the third day. It's the third day, and, and she goes to the tomb, not thinking that he's going to be alive, but she goes to the tomb because back in Jesus' day, it was believed that on the third day you could still interact with the spirit of the dead person. So she knew this, that she's going to get to that tomb. Yes, he'll still be dead, but yet she'll still be able to interact with this, with this spirit. And, and, and then after the third day, it's over, and then there's no more opportunity for that. So she goes to the tomb expecting that, and as she's approaching that, all of a sudden she realizes something's strange here. She went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She's already in a distraught state. But now what's she going to do? She's distraught, this person that she came to, to interact with, and I don't know all the details of how that went down, but, but now what's she going to do if the body's not there? Mary Magdalene had a past. She had a past, and this past was one that was not pretty. She had a past that involved her being demon-possessed, not by one demon, but by seven. Every day for her was a nightmare. Every night, every night for her was a reality of it being a nightmare all the time. She could not escape these demons, these demons that had done a number on her and had made her do things that she never wanted to do or should have done. She was a demoniac. She was a demoniac. And one of the consequences of this demon possession was this, was complete and absolute social isolation. No one wanted to be around her. They had no idea what she would do. They had no idea how to control her. They had no idea what would come out of her mouth. She was a mess. But yet, one day, 
Jesus came to her. Jesus knew the demon possession. Jesus knew that she was socially isolated. Jesus knew that she had a past. Jesus knew every little detail about her. And yet Jesus went up to her and rescued her. She was freed. When you understand the incredible past that she has, and you then understand why she would get to that tomb as quickly as possible, Jesus Christ had changed her life. Jesus Christ knew her past, and he set her free. Every single person in this room right now, myself included, has a past. We have a past that's not always pretty. We have a past that includes things that, that we have done or ought, that we should have done that we did not do. We have a past that, that, that at times tyrannizes, terrorizes us and, and, and awakens us in the middle of, of an evening sleep. We have a past that, that at times is filled with guilt and shame. Everybody has a past. It might not be demon possession, but everybody has a past. And Jesus Christ knows your past. He knows what you've done when you think nobody knows what you've done. And Jesus Christ has this amazing ability, no matter what your past is, to set you free. Are you here this morning? And you're here because this is what you do once or twice a year. Because you don't think that Jesus Christ can handle your past. He can't handle your present. He can't handle your future. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ conquered the grave. I think he can handle your past, your present, and your future. Turn to him. Turn to him because he sets people free. But I want you to notice something in verse 2. It says this, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And by the way, real quickly, I believe, along with many other commentators, that 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 disciple is John. So I'm going to simply call him John. If that's not who it is, then God help you because I've not done a good job. But but, uh, we'll leave it at that. I believe it to be John. She says this, they've taken, and I want you to notice the next line. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. In the midst of her distress, in the midst of being distraught, she still believes that Jesus Christ is the Lord. No matter what anybody could say to her, no matter what anybody had done to her, it wasn't going to change the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord. No matter what's going on in your life, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord. We call Him Lord when everything seems to be going well. But when things aren't going well, we seem to have other words that we'd like to say. But in the midst of her distress, in the midst of being distraught, she still calls him Lord. 
And then we pick it up in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the, cl- as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not believe. They still did not understand from Scripture. I'm sorry. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. You have Mary who's in this distressful state. She's distraught. She goes and she reports to Simon and John what has happened. And now we see that John and Peter are driven. We have this distressed individual and then we have driven individuals. And Simon and, well, Peter and John don't look at her and say, listen, you were obviously seeing some strange things. We're not doing anything. No. John and Peter take off and they run. They're driven for something greater than they ever thought possible. Yes, there were clues that Jesus had been dropping to them over the course of their time with Him for those three plus years. But now all of a sudden, they're driven to see, could it be true? That He said He would suffer, He said He would die, and then He kept saying this to us, John, that He was going to rise from the dead on the third day. Could it be true? They ran to the tomb. All of us are running to something or to someone. Is it worth that drive? Is it worth the drive in your life to continue to pursue to make more and more money? Is it is what's driving you this constant desire to be a more popular and, and better person that, that people would sit there and say, wow, you're an amazing individual? Is what's driving you this complete escape from your past and you're trying to prove yourself again and again and again? What is driving you? What was driving Peter and John was this, is Jesus Christ the reality? Is Jesus Christ really who we think He is? Is Jesus Christ the same one that we saw walk on water? Is He the one that we've longed for for all these years? Could it be Him? That's what was driving them. And so then they get there, they get to the tomb, John arrives first, And we pick it up in verse 5. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Unlike Mary, who saw a stone rolled away from from the front of the tomb, Peter and John go in. They go in and what do they see? They see linen lying on the ground. They see grave clothes lying on the ground. Why is this significant? It's significant because of this. John's gospel is unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel was the last gospel written. 
By the time John's gospel came into existence, even though it was only a few decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were put together, even though it was just a short period of time, there was already false teaching going on that said that Jesus Christ really did not rise from the dead. And so as John is writing his gospel, he is going to give us hints about things that, that, were, that, they, that they saw. And what they saw matters. What they saw has great significance. Because they both saw it. Just a few weeks ago when we were going through our Ten Commandments series and we talked about the importance of testimony and the importance of two people having a testimony. Which, and by having two people, that's what makes it valid. John is piggybacking off of that and saying, it wasn't just me who saw this. It was Peter who saw this. And because there are two witnesses, this really happened. There are strips of linen lying there. Why is this significant? It's significant because of this. A thief would grab the body and go. A thief would not take the time to unwrap a body. And keep in mind, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapped this body in 75 pounds of material. I had my car broken into a couple times. After it was broken into, the person who broke into it did not bother to clean up after they had broken into it. They did what they did and they left. If a person is going to steal a body, we're not going to have any linen lying on the ground. It's going to be gone. So John is addressing this false teaching that says that Jesus Christ really wasn't there. But yet, there's still questions. We have so many different questions. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? How do we know it's true? John says, I'll tell you how we know it's true. I was there. I saw it. And not only me, but Peter saw it too. We saw this linen lying on the ground. But here's an interesting thing that happens. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says this, Finally John, or finally the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. Notice the next line. He saw and believed. That causes some questions. Because we'd be okay if there wasn't a verse 9. Because verse 9 says, They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Which now prompts the question, What did John believe? What did he believe? What was going on at this point? As you read through John's Gospel, this issue of belief is a huge, not just a concept, it's a huge issue that he's constantly addressing again and again, and he meets people at different places of their belief or their unbelief. There's a child who is stricken with some type of seizure, drops on the ground, and, and, the, and, the, and the father says, please heal my son, and Jesus Christ's response is this, his response is, I can do it for those who believe. And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. 
For John, there's this idea that belief is something that is an ongoing experience for everyone. And for John to make this statement that he saw and believed, what many people believe is this, is that John simply said, Peter came out of the tomb and said, you should see what's in there. There's stuff lying on the ground. So John goes in and he says, I believe that there's stuff lying on the ground. I see it. He continues on. He continues on, and, and, and what ends up happening, John continues on telling the story, but I need to ask you this question right now. What do you believe about the resurrection? Because we're about to see what is so powerful about the resurrection. They saw clothing lying on the ground, but they didn't, didn't see a body. Notice that. Up to this point, Jesus Christ is a no-show. We don't know where he is. So, verse 10, the disciples went back to where they were staying. They didn't say a word. They didn't know what to do. At times in our belief, we don't know what's going on. We're not quite sure how to communicate what's going on within us, but we know something's stirring. We don't have to have it all figured out, but something's stirring. We need to acknowledge that. And we pick it up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. She was in a state of distress. She was distraught just a little while ago. John and Peter were driven to find out what's going on. And now we see this, this woman who has this incredible devotion. She is so devoted, she's not going to leave the tomb. She's still there. We're told this, she stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She stood outside the tomb crying. Real quick comment, and then we'll come back to this. Peter and John went into the tomb. They're going to go past Mary to get to where they're going. Mary is crying, and being the sensitive guys that Peter and John are, they kept walking away. Chivalry was not a big priority for Peter and John. And let me just make another quick comment since I have your attention right now. Gentlemen, if you see a woman crying, run. No, I'm not saying that at all. Stop and find out what's going on. Of course, some of you are going, well, the reason why she's crying is because of me. Well, then run. Back to the event. She's weeping. She doesn't leave the tomb. And so she had seen Peter and John go into the tomb, and so Mary decides, I'm going to take a look. And as we're told that she looks into the tomb, what we're thinking she's going to see are strips of linen and a cloth lying on the ground. That's what we're expecting, because that's what Peter and John saw. But notice what happens. She doesn't see cloth lying there, and perhaps it's still there, but, she, but this is what she saw. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
For some reason, if there's still linen lying there, for some reason, an angel sighting trumps seeing a bunch of clothes lying on the ground. But I want you to notice something else. Mary does not flinch. To the best of my memory, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only time in Scripture where a person sees an angel and does not flinch. This Mary was one tough woman. Of course, I guess with seven demons in her at one time, she became pretty tough. And so she's looking at the angel saying, okay, you're here. She's still crying, and they asked her in verse 13, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. She wants to see Jesus. That's the whole reason why she came, and not necessarily to see him, but to interact with that spirit, to, to in essence, pay her last respects. Because keep in mind, when he died, it was a Friday. The next day was a Sabbath. She was not going to be allowed to do any type of interacting at all. So she had to wait. It's the third day. It's the final day for her to be able to interact with the Spirit. And now all of a sudden, it's there and he's not there. And she says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turns around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus is right there. And she doesn't see him. In many of our lives, there are those moments that happen when Jesus is right there and we fail to see him. We're so caught up in our distress. We're so caught up in our agony. We're so caught up in our anger. We're so caught up in this. We're so caught up in that, that He's right there, and we can't even see Him. This, what makes Jesus such a remarkable individual isn't that He can't understand what's going on in our lives. It's that He can understand so much more than what's going on in our lives. He can understand the depths. He can understand the heights. He can understand the in-between times. So when you think He's not there, when you think that He isn't there near you, He's right there saying, Just see me. Some of you need to know that this morning. Because you're so wrapped up, or you're like me, you're so wrapped up in all these different things, and you're praying, you're crying out, saying, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I'm really right here with you. She saw him, but she didn't realize he was there. And then verse 15, Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Real quick comment. Jesus always meets people outside the tomb. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. Jesus Christ draws people out of the tomb and he says, Let's talk. 
Jesus Christ says, I'll enter into the tomb. I did it one time to conquer death, to conquer sin. I want to talk to you outside the tomb. And that's where I'm going to talk to you. So she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. Then verse 16, one of the most powerful verses in all of, in all of the Gospels. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus calls her by name. There have been billions of people on this planet that have walked the face of this earth. And Jesus Christ calls all those billions by name. You might think that you don't matter. You might think that life has passed you by. You might think that opportunities that you thought were going to be there, will that they're gone forever. You might think that nobody really cares about you anymore. You might think that all you are is a number. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ calls you by your name. He knows you. He knows you better than anyone else knows you. He says, Mary... She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And so all of a sudden, all this distress, all this distraught state that she's in, all this wondering, is is she ever going to see this man again? All of a sudden, it all comes to a close, and she's right there, and she wraps her arms around him. Because look what it says, do not hold on to me. And it's not like Jesus is afraid he's going to get cooties or something. He's saying that we've still got work to do. Don't hold on to me and, and think that there is that it's that yes, it's over. Yes, I said it is finished. Yes, salvation is secure, but there's a message that we need to get out, and this message needs to get out quickly. Because people matter to me. He calls her by, his na- by, by her name and he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus now has a new family. For the first time in the Gospels, Jesus says, My God is your God. My Father is your Father. Up to this point, it's been my God and my Father. But now Jesus Christ is saying, We're in this. We are family. We are together. These guys that were with me for three and a half years, yes, they bailed on me. Yes, they betrayed me. Yes, they denied me. Yes, they did all these different things. But they're my family. They're my family now. We're going to carry on this message that salvation has come. Salvation is secure because I have risen from the dead. She moves from this state of devotion to now a state of deliverance. That this message that delivered her, she now gets to share with others. So Mary Magdalene, in verse 18, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that He had said these things to her. As you read through John's Gospel, you will notice over and over again this repetition of people being in distress, which then drives them to Jesus, and then they become devoted to Jesus. 
The first miracle in John chapter 2, there is a distressful situation. There's this wedding festival going on, this wedding party going on. They've run out of wine. They're distressed. They're driven to Jesus. Jesus says, fill up some of these jars. They fill up these jars, and all of a sudden they say, this is better than anything we've ever had before. And they become devoted to Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is, is, is in a state of distress. He doesn't know what to do with what the Pharisees are saying that, is about, that, that they believe about Jesus. And so Nicodemus shows up in a distressed state at night. He's distraught. He doesn't know how to respond to this. He's driven to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he begins asking questions. And in the midst of those questions, Nicodemus becomes this amazing follower. That he's so devoted to him, so devoted that on the, he's, Nicodemus is one of the last people to see see the physical body of Jesus Christ before it goes into the tomb. There are these two sisters, Mary and Martha, they're distressed, their brother Lazarus has died. They're driven to get to Jesus. As they get to Jesus, they say, you need to do something about this. Jesus shows up, he sees their distress, he sees that they're driven to know him, and he then goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And they become devoted to him. His disciples longed for a Messiah. They were distressed. And Jesus Christ comes into their lives and rescues them. And they become devoted. They become devoted except for one. And they become so devoted that they carry on a message that changes the world. No fooling. Jesus really rose from the dead. And because He rose from the dead, we now have hope. Because He rose from the dead, we now have forgiveness. Because He rose from the dead, we now have power. Because He rose from the dead, we have salvation. Are you here this morning distressed? Are you here this morning being driven by something that that will not let you go? Are you here this morning wondering if Jesus Christ is the real deal? I'm here to tell you this is no April Fool's joke. Jesus Christ is the real deal. He really rose from the dead. And now you have a decision to make about what you're going to do about this resurrected Jesus Christ. The one who conquered sin, the one who conquered death, the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest because I rose from the dead. Father, we pray as we contemplate these words. May that message that Mary Magdalene and Peter and John and the other nine disciples began to share that has changed the world, may that message resonate deeply within each one of us. Lord, we pray that no matter what our past is, that we would realize that you're big enough to rescue us from our past. No matter what our present is, that you're big enough to walk with us through what our present is. And no matter what our future is, 
the anxieties and the doubts and the fears that we have about it. May we know that your peace is available to us. You can handle our lives because you lived, you died, and you rose again, never to die again. You are the Lord of life. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is working on all of our hearts. And perhaps today, for someone in here, it's the first day of them saying, you are my Lord. May that be true. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for rising from the dead. In your holy name we pray. Amen.